0: Please rise for the reading of God's word. We're reading Hebrews chapter 13, page 1009 in the Pew Bible. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I might be restored to you the sooner. And may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if you come soon. Greet all your leaders and the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you.
1: Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to this final glorious chapter of such a beautiful book, and uh, let's pray as we look together at it. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. We pray, therefore, that we would be a people who listen, and we need your help to do that. We need your spirit to give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you. And so, Lord, would you do that this morning? Would you quicken our hearts that your word uh, would not return void even this morning, but it would accomplish in us what you send it to do? And may that be true for every one of us here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, One of our favorite shows uh, that we watch as a family, is called American Ninja Warrior. Anybody seen that? few hands. Don't be shy. It's okay. This is a judgment-free zone. Good, good. Well, if you haven't seen it, it's basically an obstacle course. But it is the most intense obstacle course that you can imagine. Uh, depending on whether it's like a qualifying round or a city final, athletes have to face six to ten obstacles like hanging onto a log while it spins down a track and not being thrown off or uh, climbing challenges where you're not allowed to use your feet. It's just your grip strength climbing along some sort of thing or uh, you know, jumping off of a trampoline and having to catch yourself between two walls and then walk along it. It's pretty remarkable and of course the, the climax of each uh, course is the Warped wall, they call it. It's this 14-foot, now sometimes 18-foot wall that you literally have to run up and grab and pull yourself over. It is intense. It's really fun to watch. There's some ridiculously talented athletes. And those who make it to the national finals face not just one obstacle course, but four courses, four stages. Uh, The first uh, three have different obstacles on them, and then it all leads up to this final one where it's just one obstacle, you have to climb a 75-foot rope in less than 30 seconds. Uh, And if you can do all of that and make it to the end, you get $1 million at the end of the season. Uh, uh, Over nine seasons and 3,500 competitors, only two people have ever finished the whole thing. So it's pretty intense. And part of what makes it so challenging and so entertaining to watch is that many of the obstacles are unknown by the athletes going into the course. For some of them, the first time they'll ever try to do that is during their run. And so uh, you have to be able to develop general skills and a diverse set of strengths in order to apply them to a variety of unknown obstacles in the course of a season. And I think that there are a lot of uh, metaphors there for life in general, but specifically for what we see in Hebrews chapter 13. The the series of instructions that kind of don't necessarily feel like they all fit together, but they give us this uh, uh, application of the book itself to this variety of situations and often unpredictable uh, challenges that we need to be able to navigate if we're going to finish our race well in worship of christ the biggest difference of course is that it's not our strength that we're called to depend on uh, but it's the strength of the one who equips us through the blood of the eternal covenant that is our better savior king and priest jesus christ now hebrews uh, 13 again it's the last chapter of this book a book that as we've seen so far uh, was written to an ancient church that was struggling. To follow Christ amid great temptation and pressure to let go of Christ and to go back to the old covenant of Judaism. Uh, and in this final chapter, you know, we find a lot of the common features that you'll find at the last chapter of any letter in the New Testament. There's some personal greetings at the end, there's some final instructions, especially verses 22 to 25. But but this is not a throwaway conclusion. He has packed this thing full of concluding instructions to put this book into practice. Uh, These instructions that show us not just what it looks like practically to endure and persevere in faith, as he's called us to for the whole book, but instructions that specifically show us what acceptable worship looks like under the new covenant in Christ. If you uh, were here last week or if you've read Hebrews 12, you'll remember that chapter 12 Ended with, uh, it raised a question at the end. The final verses, uh, the author writes, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And the question that raises is, What is acceptable worship? What does he mean? That if we're supposed to offer this acceptable worship, what's he talking about? Well, that's the question chapter 13 is answering. Here's what acceptable worship looks like under the new covenant in Christ. And what we see here is that it's not defined primarily by ritual. That would be kind of the assumption of someone who's grown up under the old covenant. That's the assumption many of us come with today, that, that there's this ritualized uh feel or primarily a ritualized approach to worship it's what you do when you go to church it's what uh you the the motions you go through or the or the clergy up front goes through that that's what acceptable worship entails and of course worship is not less than gathering it's not less than having certain regular activities we participate in every worship service has a kind of ritual format to it, a liturgy, as we often call it. Whether it's formal and planned or informal, we always have a liturgy. But it's not the ritual of gathered worship that he focuses on in his answer here. But rather, what we see in chapter 13, through all of these different instructions, is that worship in the New Covenant is defined by a whole life lived according to God's will for the sake of Christ. Not just what we do when we gather, but how we live and how we approach every situation in life. All of life is an act of worship in Christ. You might think of it, of gathered worship is like going to the gym. Uh, gathered worship, you go to the gym to train, to equip, to Uh, get in shape, right? It is essential. If you are an athlete, you're spending time at the gym. If you're a ninja warrior, the point of the gym, though, is to prepare you for the course. And so it's essential. You, You don't skip it. You need it. But the whole point is to get out and then live it. And so honoring God amid the diverse and often unpredictable situations of life, that's when we get onto the course. It's not just what we do when we gather, it's what we do when we leave. And we can summarize all of these diverse instructions um, that we have here in chapter 13, I think under four categories, or four stages, if you will. And each of them has their own set of obstacles that you've got to overcome or endure uh, that you're likely to face in this process. Stage one, I would call familial love, and that's verses 1 through 6. Stage 2 is following leaders, verses 7 to 8 and 17 to 19. Stage 3 is fruitful lips and loving fellowship, that's verses 9 to 16. And then finally stage 4, which is the capstone that sums it all up, is a faithful life, in verses 20 to 21. And so we'll start with stage 1, familial love, family love, brotherly love. Love verses one to six. Uh, one of the remarkable features of this—I don't know if you call it a sport. I suppose you could call it a sport. This Ninja Warrior competition. Uh, one of the remarkable features is that the competitors that are in it really are a family. It's really interesting to watch that they're all competing against each other on the same course, and yet they love each other and cheer each other on. You never see the kind of trash talking, not even playfully. Uh, when when someone compete, completes the course, they're cheering for them, even if it means they put up a better time than than them. Uh, when someone falls, they genuinely hurt with them and encourage them to get back up and try again. It's, a, it's really unique among sports to see that kind of family camaraderie among competitors. And the church, too, is a family. We are an even greater and more enduring family. We are an eternal Family purchased and sealed by the blood of Christ. And so we ought to be marked by a deep abiding family love. We are knit together for all eternity through Jesus. A deep and abiding affection and and as we two run our course together. And so we need to do that with a family love, a brotherly love. And that's the overarching theme of this first stage. If you look at the instruction in verse one let brotherly love continue. Let it abide. Continue to endure in family affection as you pursue Christ. And what that looks like, what brotherly love looks like is then spelled out in four obstacles. Hospitality, compassion, marriage, and money. Obstacles that are going to test our endurance in several ways, uh, requiring us to overcome selfishness and indifference and self-protection and self-preservation in order to abide in a familial love that brings glory to God. And so the first obstacle we see is hospitality in verse 2, which tests our ability to roll with the unforeseen needs of others and the extent to which we're willing to loosen our grip on our stuff in order to help others. So verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Let's just get to the weird part of that verse first. Entertaining angels unawares. That's not exactly a category I keep handy in my interaction with strangers. Was that just an you know, I'm not asking that question typically. What is he talking about? Um, well, you remember the story of Abraham in Genesis 18. The travelers, the three travelers who visited Abraham in his home, whom he entertained and received and hosted, they were angels. They were messengers of God. Uh, this is a good reminder that the world is much bigger than what we can see with our own eyes. Uh, there is a hidden realm. And that God's work is often much bigger than what we can actually perceive him doing in the moment. And so the point here is that what is strange to us or people who are strange to us may not be strange to God. They might just be part of his heavenly family. And so abiding in brotherly love means showing hospitality to strangers, to those who are not like us. Denying ourselves, counting others more significant, and here's the hard one, allowing ourselves and our busy lives to be inconvenienced by someone else. That's hard for us. We, we've just so organized every minute of our day planner that, that, that a need or a stranger comes along, we don't, I don't know what to do with that. We need to make space for that. We need to welcome others into our homes, come alongside them in their needs to show kindness in the same way that God has shown kindness to us. We too once were strangers and God in his mercy met us. And so brotherly love, family affection involves hospitality to strangers. That's the first obstacle on this stage one of the course. The second is compassion. Specifically, compassion toward those who are in prison for their faith, which requires us to remember those who've been sidelined because of their faith. Verse 3, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. You know, unless you are a defense attorney there's probably only one reason that any of us would actually go visit somebody in prison. Because they're family. That's the main reason most of us would go through the motions and the rigmarole to try and get access to visit somebody in prison, if that person was a family member. And that's the context in verse 3 here. Uh, now, it's a, it's a good principle and, and, and a good thing to go beyond our own family to to uh, remember the incarcerated, generally speaking. And our country is in need of a massive overhaul in prison reform. But that's all important. That's not exactly what he's talking about here, though. What he's talking about in the context of the book is those imprisoned or mistreated for their faith in Christ. That came up earlier in chapter 10. So he's talking about family members imprisoned for their faith, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's something we don't typically deal with in America, right? Nobody is worried about getting hauled off to jail. Uh, We might be mistreated, but we're not going to be imprisoned in our country. Not yet. And I don't think that that's likely to happen as long as we remain a democracy and those kinds of things. Uh, But it does happen all over the world. It does. And when it happens, do we stop and realize, and I'm asking myself the same question, do we stop and realize that when it happens to those on the other side of the world, it's happening to our family, that those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. There has been more persecution against the church in the last 150 years than in the previous 1,850 years before that. Does that bother us? Do we remember those in prison? It's kind of hard to visit them because we don't know who they are. But do we remember them? Do we pray for them? Um, We need to have a broader sense of who our family in Christ is, and it's bigger than just our local congregation. So remembering uh, with compassion, that's the second obstacle. The third obstacle is marriage. And here the challenge involves overcoming indifference and resisting self-indulgence. So verse 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The family of God is called to honor marriage, uh, whether or not you are married. Uh, it is an institution established by God for our good, for the good of society, and for the, ultimately for the glory of his name. And it's no secret, we live in a world that no longer honors marriage, which it doesn't. Uh, nearly 50% of marriages end in divorce in America. Only 60% of children born today are born into a married household. And that varies depending on economic and other factors. Um, And of course, society has removed marriage from its created context uh, of a man and a woman and redefined it in our own terms. And and so just to make it through life, honoring marriage as God designed it, that's a big win today, upholding marriage the institution of marriage. Now, for those of us who have experienced or been wounded by or even contributed to the breakdown of marriage in our society, that doesn't mean that we're beyond repair or beyond forgiveness. The grace of God is powerful to redeem the sins we commit and the sins committed against us. And we need to always Remember that. Moreover, the grace of God gives us a bigger family even when our own little family breaks down. And we need to remember that. That whatever our current status is, we belong to something bigger. And that God's grace is powerful to redeem that and bring wholeness to us. But recognizing the sufficiency of grace for the breakdown of marriage doesn't mean we should uh, lower our view of the importance of marriage. Uh, it is a holy thing, and navigating life successfully calls us to honor that institution in our pursuit of Christ. And of course, part of that then is saying no to the self-indulgence that leads to adultery and sexual immorality. That's the second part of that verse. And again, that's a huge temptation in our world uh, that threatens to trip up so many of us And it's one of those things that nobody typically thinks can happen to them. Uh, Staying faithful to your spouse in heart and in practice, it looks like the easiest obstacle on the course, right? And yet, even seasoned veterans can trip up on easy obstacles if they take them for granted. And so we need to not take our marriages for granted. We need to pursue our spouses, invest in our marriages Because Jesus is better, we are called to honor the institution he's given us. So that's the third obstacle. The fourth obstacle of stage one is a challenge that all of us face, and that is the love of money. A test designed to expose our hearts and what we're really depending on in life. So verses five to six. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Some of the upper body strength uh, obstacles in the Ninja Warrior competition test not just your grip strength, but your ability to find something stable to hold on to. So you might be crawling across this thing and some of the doorknobs are fixed and some of them spin. And you got to figure out which ones to grab. Because if you hold on to one that's spinning, you're going down. Well, when it comes to the love of money versus contentment, it's not about what we have, but what we're holding on to. If we're holding on to our possessions, whether we have a lot of them or a little of them, if that's our security or our satisfaction... That doorknob's going to spin and we're going to go into the drink. But if we're holding on to God himself, if we really believe what he says here, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, if we believe that, if we're holding on to God himself, then whatever happens in life, that, that that's part of his plan and an expression of his love, then we can be content regardless of our circumstances because we have God who's never going to leave us or forsake us. And we can be confident in his help regardless of what this world throws at us, which makes us free, therefore, to open our hands and share with others rather than holding on to what we have as a kind of self-preservation. It's amazing. Some of the most generous people I've ever met in life are those who have the least because they've got God. And they know he's enough. It's really remarkable. So the challenges of family love are real. And and you get through those obstacles. And you could feel exhausted already, right? That's a lot to kind of try and navigate in following Jesus. That's just stage one. There are three more stages in this chapter of navigating obstacles, pursuing Christ. Because there's more to life than... Familial love. And so stage two, if you will, focuses on following leaders. Both those who've gone before us and have finished their race, verses 7 and 8, and those who are currently over us in our church context, verses 17 and 19. And here there are three obstacles. Remembering your leaders, obeying your leaders, and praying for your leaders. And all of those work together to, te- to uh, test our teachability and our humility, and our commitment and engagement. With any sport, uh, you always remember the greats. You always remember the greats. Even when they're long gone, we still tell stories of the great athletes in a particular sport. Not just because there's so much to learn from them about how they did it, but because they inspired you to get into the game yourself. It is no different for the church. In verse 7, it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's the first obstacle of stage 2, to remember your leaders. And most think that verse 7 is talking about leaders who have already finished the race, who are already with the Lord in heaven. And and the difference being in verse 7 we're told to remember our leaders, in verse 17 we're told to obey them. And so verse 7 is kind of looking back on those who've gone before us. And what are we to remember? We are to consider not just their way of life, but the outcome of their way of life. What their pursuit of Christ produced in the end. They've already made it to the finish line. So so it's like if you're a rookie, going through all of the old tapes and watching somebody's career and how it culminated, uh, you, you learn a lot in that process. You learn, one, that you haven't arrived and you have a lot more to learn. But two, you see an example of someone who has persevered, someone I can imitate. And so in a church context, who, you know, remembering the leaders who've gone before us and finished their race, for me, I think of Garrett Van Wagenen. Garrett was a lover of Jesus and a leader in this very church, who together with his wife Julie, they laid down their lives, they sold everything that they had, they moved to Haiti to love the least of these. He was a man who endured a difficult ministry context in Haiti, and then endured an aggressive cancer and remained faithful all the way to the end. I want to be like that. I want to be like that. I mean, some of you might think of Wayne Anderson, the founding pastor of this church. Uh, Others, you know, of different leaders you've had in your life in different church contexts. Remember them. Remember them. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate them. And, And the reason that we can still follow the example of those who've gone on before us is because the one that they were following hasn't changed and isn't going to. That's what verse 8 tells us. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. We're all following the same Savior. And so we can look back on the examples and remember our leaders. That's the obstacle, the first obstacle. The second is obey your leaders, verse 17. This one can be hard for some of us uh, because it really tests our humility and our trust. Uh, Submitting to someone else means I'm not in charge. I don't have all the answers. That's not an easy posture for people in our culture today. And because authority is so easily and so often abused, it can be really tempting to just want to get rid of authority completely. But again, you go back to the athletic analogy. No serious athlete is going to ignore the instructions of their coach or their trainer. And so it is with the church. Uh, Their calling, you know, leaders in the church, their calling is not to lord their authority over you. Their calling is to lay their lives down and serve you. That's what they've been charged by God to do. So look again at at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So so understand that that the elders here at Westgate, we're going to have to answer to God for how we care for you. That's a terrifying thought. And, And it's something we take seriously. We are not... Perfect. And if you know us, you know that we're not perfect. We don't do it correctly all the time. We are trying to grow and continually trying to improve that. You'll actually hear more about that this summer. We want to be faithful. Uh, We need your grace just as much as you need grace. We all need it. Uh, But there is a responsibility we're called to, and it's and it's not to lord something over, but to serve you so you can succeed in following Christ. That's the point of leadership. And there is a way you can help us, continuing in verse 17, as we seek to shepherd and equip you, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. you know, it, it's basically a way of saying, don't make it harder on your leaders than you have to. <laughs> Remember that they too need the Savior just as much as you, and do the, let them do their calling with joy and not with groaning. Um, Leaders are accountable to the congregation. Our authority is contingent on our faithfulness to the gospel. Keep all of those things in mind. But also remember the, uh, the context in which God has placed us. And worship Jesus by obeying leaders. The third obstacle is then praying for your leaders. Verses 18 to 19. And here the author specifically is asking for prayer for himself and the apostles, that they uh, might continue faithfully and might be reunited with this congregation as soon as possible. But you think about it, it's really a remarkable thing that here he he just spent 13 chapters instructing this church, uh, warning them, encouraging them, and yet he needs this church just as much as they need what he has to say. He needs their prayers. His ministry is dependent on their prayers. And, and the point here is simple. Again, your leaders need you just as much as you need them. Uh, they need your accountability, your encouragement, your engagement, and especially your prayers. So pray for your leaders. That's stage two, following leaders. Stage three, we find in verses 9 to 16. And it's a new theme and a whole new set of obstacles. The theme can be summarized as fruitful lips and loving fellowship. And there are four obstacles there. Testing really our dependence on Christ. Strange teachings, public ridicule, praising God, and doing good. An athlete has to watch not just how they train, but what they eat what you feed yourself on affects your endurance. And the first obstacle here of strange teaching is a test of a proper diet. Verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So what does he mean by strange and diverse teachings? What What's that talking about? Is this some new doctrine that might pop up uh, in the ancient world and threaten to lead people away from Christ? When I mean, You can look at history. You can look at other letters. You know there was no shortage of new doctrines popping up among the churches. Uh, but given the context of the book, I think it's pretty unlikely that he's going to introduce a new threat as he's landing the plane when he has spent so much of the book on the pervasive threat of returning to the Old Covenant. And so it's far more likely here that he's simply describing the Old Covenant as strange and diverse teaching. Not because it's unuseful or or anything like that, but because relative to the gospel that has now fulfilled that Old Covenant, it is strange. It is foreign. If you're going to depend on ritual sacrifices for your relationship with God, that is foreign to the gospel. That's foreign to the gospel of God's grace. That's the wrong kind of diet. Under the old covenant, it was common for the priests to eat from certain sacrifices that were made on the altar. That's how they got their food. They didn't. They weren't given an allotment. They were uh, the Levites were uh, placed. They were set apart for God, and so they didn't have land to grow crops or raise sheep or anything. They ate a portion of what was given. To the Lord in worship under the new covenant though it's not food that strengthens our hearts it's the grace that we have through Jesus that's the the point the author is trying to make here and he illustrates that by pointing out that that the cross in verses 10 through 12 here the cross is not the kind of altar that any priest is allowed to eat from you're eating the wrong food. If you're trying to be nourished to follow God, that's the wrong kind of food. Rather, like certain old covenant offerings where the animal is is then taken out and burned outside the camp, Jesus was sacrificed outside the city. It's a way of making a break with the ritual sacrifices of the old covenant, saying that, that now we rest in the finished work of Christ and live a life of A whole life of worship to God, to the glory of Christ. And when we do that, when we break with a system that's so focused on a ritual format of worship, and and that's not just a, a thing of ancient Judaism, that's something that a lot of church contexts do today as well, that it's all about a certain ritual process you go through when you gather. When you break with something like that, You will put yourself at odds with those who who continue to insist on that ritual-driven form of worship. Those who are booing you now from the stands. Which brings us then to the second obstacle of public ridicule. We will be ridiculed for breaking with the Old Covenant or with its modern imitations and instead holding fast to Christ. Whereas the Old Covenant is a strange doctrine relative to the gospel, those who hold fast to the gospel become strangers in a world dominated by ritualistic worship. And again, what we're talking about here is the kind of worship that you can go to on Sunday morning and walk away from, and you are no different. And in fact, it doesn't even matter if you showed up that week, as long as you get there every now and then, and because it's all based on whatever the clergy does up front. And, and so it's the kind of worship where you can go through motions, but never have your heart engaged, never be called to follow Jesus, and never be called to trust in His finished work. That's what we're talking about. And, and when you grow up in that context and then leave it for the gospel, you will face ridicule. You will be accused of abandoning the family and, 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 and so on. There's a ridicule you will receive. There's a cost in holding fast to Christ. And so there's a test of, am I really going to depend on Jesus even if it costs me my reputation with those whom I love? But the author here says, embrace that ridicule. Embrace the strangeness of being counted a stranger. Yes, the ridicule hurts and that rejection that you might receive Uh, can be devastating, but what a privilege to share in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus suffered outside the gate. Therefore, verse 13, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we have no lasting city. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So public ridicule is hard. Being ostracized for your family because you no longer participate in a ritually driven worship context can be hard, but Jesus is worth it. The third and fourth obstacles um, kind of bleed into each other in verses 15 to 16, and they show us the kind of sacrifices that actually please God. So these sacrifices don't. Bringing offerings to Him on an altar, no, not good. We don't make those kinds of sacrifices. So what kind of sacrifices do please God? That's what he answers here. Uh, and and it's, what, it's the fruitful lips of praise and the loving fellowship that does good to others. You know, the most passionate runners on a ninja course are often those who are running for someone other than themselves. And there's often these dramatic backstories that they'll tell before the competitor gets up. And, and they're often quite moving, uh, but the most passionate ones are often running for someone that they love, like a lost one, or, or, or for a cause that they're invested in. And so these final two obstacles show us that, that running well requires getting our eyes off of ourselves and on to the glory of God and the good of others. So first, verse 15, running for the glory of God through a sacrifice of praise through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So what kind of offering does God actually pleased by? One of praise. Uh, praise, de- declaring who he is, uh, describing what he's done. And then second, doing good. That's verse 16. Do not neglect to do good or share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So doing what is right, loving your neighbor, praise that goes upward to God, goodness, service that goes outward to others. Again, our worship is not primarily ritual-driven, but it is a whole life, a life of praise and a life of service. That's what brings honor to God. And that takes us to stage four, and there's just one obstacle in stage four. And that is what we see in the instruction of sorts to do God's will, verses 20 and 21. To do what God purposes, what God desires, what's pleasing in his sight. And really, that's kind of a summary of the whole book. How do do you describe all of the instructions we've been given to hold fast to the gospel? How do you sum up what worship really is? It's doing the will of God. So we see that as that final capstone obstacle. But we also see in this benediction several other important things. First, the source of our ability to do that, the means, and the goal. Again, the biggest difference between the illustration of a ninja competition and our actual worship to God is whose strength we're called to depend on. It's not me, it's him. It is the God of peace who equips us with everything good to do His will. God's not sitting in heaven uh, on a bench, you know, with His legs spread out, whistling His mouth, barking at us to do better. He's the one supplying the strength. And He supplies it through Jesus. It's... Our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep in the blood of the eternal covenant. It's everything we've looked at in Hebrews so far about how Jesus is better. He's the one who does the work. It's his finished work. That's how we're able to do all of this. And so because of Jesus, because God supplies the strength and Jesus is the means, therefore, in the end, the goal, it's all for God's glory. We have confidence that we will stand at the top of that mountain on the last day. And when we do, it's not our name that people are going to be shouting. It's Christ's. Because he's the treasure. He's the goal. He is better. There's nothing better than Christ. And so so the whole book comes together in this benediction, pointing us to God, reminding us that it's Jesus' work and, and focusing our worship on doing God's will, not just showing up Sundays, but a whole life lived according to the will of God for the sake of Christ's glory. Because Jesus is better. If there's only one thing we learn from the book of Hebrews, let it be that. That Jesus is better. And so we worship Him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank You for this incredible portrait of your grace in the book of Hebrews. Lord, may we not soon forget its message. May we reflect on it and ponder it and walk with you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.